as we work our way through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now, if you're joining us here for the first time and it's Resurrection Sunday, you're expecting a resurrection message? Nope. That's not what we do here at Calvary Chapel. We take you through the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible. And it just happens to be that this is where we are today in our study. But as I just mentioned this to Matt, I think it's quite interesting how God always orchestrates where we are in the Bible. And so today we're talking about the dead church. What better topic to talk about than the dead church and Jesus who conquered death to give life? So... Uh, it is a perfect section. You'll see the gospel weaved in it today. Again, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get you one. Revelation 3, verse 1. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Sardis. These things says he who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works and that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. They are ready to die, <laughs> for I have not found your works perfect before God or complete. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief, and you will not know the hour in which I come upon you. But you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they, they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this day, and we thank you for family, for friends. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come together to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, as we look at the dead church in history, that, Father, our hearts would be alive. That, Lord, today, if needed, we would get a shock from the Holy Spirit, an adrenaline shot, Lord, to keep us alive and not slide into the path of Sardis of being dead. Dead works that accomplish nothing. And so, Lord, we just ask that you bless those in the back serving in children's ministry and those, Lord, listening to us over the radio and over the Internet. Be glorified, Lord, in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, now, if you have not joined us through this uh, book of Revelation. There's a couple of things that you need to know as we are going through because really the book of Revelation is quite simple to understand, isn't it? Those who have been here for the last couple of weeks. How simple is it? Well, it's as simple as chapter 1, verse 19. <laughs> you knew that was coming. It's a slide we've been showing for weeks. Write the things which you've seen. That's chapter 1, the things that are. Those are chapters 2 and 3. Then the things that will take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. The book of Revelation is actually very easy to understand. It is only when it is complex because we allow it to be complex. The writer, John, is revealing Jesus. Why would Jesus want to hide himself from us? Amen. 
That's not the purpose of the book of Revelation at all. Again, it is a revealing and unveiling of Jesus. And as we are in these seven letters to the seven churches, we have four ways that we are applying them to not only us but the church. And so they are, number one, real churches in 95 A.D. As we read, there's a real church of Sardis. We'll get to that. But it also describes, and one of the big things today is inside of church history for the last 2,000 years. These seven churches represent a period of time in church history. But these are also churches today, as well as individuals today, and that's important for us because we, we want to apply this individually. So you could be today a dead church individually. Or next week, you could be alive again. You could be Philadelphia, or you could be the entitled church of Laodicea, or you've lost your, or you've left your first love, the church of Ephesus. And then inside of these letters, we also apply them four ways and, again, four C's of how we apply this. Number one, there's a commendation. There's a, a praise or a recognition of what this church is doing. There is also a condemnation, a criticism from God. Look, this is what's wrong. And then there's this counsel to get things right. And if you get things right, then there will be a promise. You will receive something. Amen? So I know that's the short condensed version of that. But now we get to this church, the church of Sardis. If you're taking note where it is on the map, again, as we look at these seven churches, you can see that Sardis is south of Thyatira. We left Thyatira last week, and we'll get into its church history. And then the last two that we will see over the next couple of weeks is the church of Philadelphia and then of Laodicea. And so this city of Sardis is located in what we know as Turkey today. It was an important wealthy city located on the commercial trade routes running east to west. And as you can see where it is, that it ran then, uh, there's a road from Sardis all the way down to Smyrna, which is the major port in the area. And so, as we know, the spice roads or the silk roads that would come out of far East Asia, all of that ran through right next to the city of Sardis. So it was very wealthy. Not only that, as there is a river, the, the, the city is built on a, a kind of an outcropping. You can get rid of that because they'll just be keep looking at the map. They'll be like, squirrel. So the city is elevated. We'll talk about that later. But there was a river that was flowing down by it, and there was lots of gold deposits, which is quite interesting because this is the first city that ever minted coins. So you'll win Jeopardy. Which city first minted coins? The city of Sardis. And so it becomes a very wealthy city, but it's also a very pagan city. It has a temple to the goddess of Cybele, and this temple was huge. The columns were over 60 feet high and 6 feet in diameter. One of the largest temples in the area. This temple and this worship to the mother goddess was honored and they worshipped her like most of the pagan temples of their day with sexual immorality and impurity. So it was natural. You know the thing, let me, let me pause a second. 
when, when we come to Christianity inside of the Roman Greek world and the, how Paul is talking about sexual immorality a lot, and you'll see that topic come up, is because they are so uh, flooded with sexual immorality and they don't think twice about it. And so Paul, by the Spirit, tells them all the time that they have to come out of that. They're not to be like the world. Sadly, Sardis chose not to be a good witness, as we will see. Now, number two in, so not only was they, uh, the church of Sardis, a, a real church in 95 AD, but when it comes to church history, this becomes an important church. Now, after the last two churches of Pergamos and Thyatira, as we looked at church history in the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church to what we know today, uh, it continues, this church of Sardis is called the dead church, and we'll see that and a reason why for that in a minute. But it is from A.D. 1520 to the present day, or what we're going to see in the book of Revelation as the tribulation period. You see, Sardis means the escaping ones or those who come out. And so this name, together with our Lord's condemnation of this church, provides a perfect description of the Reformation churches. Now, I make this statement because I, I, it really bothers me. It bothers me that in the United States of America that we do not know history for the most part. I would, I would tell you by some point if, if we continue on this roller coaster of America that they'll just get rid of history altogether. Like they got rid of PE and art and all the other things that are important to make a, well, a well-rounded individual, amen? I don't know about you, but I remember putting on those awesome gym shorts in junior high. Man, I look good. Redwood Warriors. Oh, you can't even say that. That's probably offensive too. My high school mascot, the Indians, were canceled that this past year, but I've still got a shirt, so I'm holding on to that. So inside of the church, because America doesn't know its own history, the church doesn't know its own history of church history. And what is sad to me is that, and I'm not saying that you have to take a course and have a doctorate in church history, but you got to know a couple of things. And the way and why we got to the place that we got. Why do we do what we do? Do you know why we sing songs in church? It didn't come from the Roman Catholic Church. It came from the Reformation Church. Do you know why there is evangelism? The next church that we'll see, Philadelphia, comes from George Whitfield. We don't have an American as we know it, America, without George Whitfield. Who knows that? Is that taught regularly in the church? Are you taught regularly about where we come from as a Protestant? Do you even know what that means? So as a teacher, it's hard for me to want to just dive into a section like this because I would hope that people sitting in front of me would know their own church history, but they don't. And this is not an indictment on you. It's an indictment on the whole church system because for decades upon decades, the church has decided not to inform you of these things because church history is important. We learn the good, but we also learn the bad from it and what not to do, amen? Because if we don't learn from history, we are failed 
are we, we are doomed to repeat it. And we can see that with anti-Semitism running rampant in Europe as well. So, what does this time look like? What does, what does life look like in 1520? What does the church look like in 1520? And here's the thing that you need to understand. We think today that this is how the church has always operated. If you think that, you don't know your history. What we are doing is only a result of modern day, and I say this, from not only George Whitfield from 1770s, but also a guy named William Wilberforce in the 1800s. And from that period on is what we know as the modern church. They weren't doing this in 1520. What's this? Hold up your Bible. You don't, you don't have a Bible in 1520. And it's not because the printing press isn't there. The printing press is there. But as we saw last week, this book was forbidden by the Roman Catholic Church. You weren't allowed to read it. And so we started to go into what was known as the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages were because people did not have the light. This is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The Bible tells us that. Can you imagine a period of time, and I'm talking thousands of years, when you were not allowed to read this? And a guy with a big hat told you only he could interpret it? You see... Again, as a teacher, I'm frustrated because we don't know history. Therefore, I have to give you so much to get us going. I would love just to put the application out for, for us today. But it's hard because we haven't been taught that. And so you have to endure 30 minutes of history before I can even apply this to your life. Amen? Grace today to me. <laughs> Because, look, I've got a jacket on and a Hawaiian. I'm serving both. So times were dark. They were diabolical. They were depressing. Which some then start to have a stirring inside of the church. Guys, uh, I want you to think about this. There was one church. We can go to a thousand different churches in Horry County. If you wanted to go to church in 1520, you had one choice, which really isn't a choice. You know how you go to the counter and they're like, sir, what would you have? You know, you got the, all the ice cream flavors. And you're, ooh, there's a lot of choices. And they come back and say, well, we just have vanilla. Well, that's not really a choice. If you wanted to go to church, the only church on the market was the Roman Catholic Church. In 1330, this is where it started to stir. A guy named John Wycliffe was born in England. An Oxford scholar and a Catholic priest, he began to write about the needs of, of um, getting back. I can't believe this is even being said. He wrote about getting back to the Bible. In 1330, he wrote about the Catholic abuses. He wrote about the edicts that came out of the church. He had no mind of like, I got a great idea. Let's start our own church. You didn't do that. You had this and only this. 
Later on, one of his, one of his, um, his cohorts, uh, John Huss, was burned to the stake because of what they believe, and they dared go against the Roman Catholic edicts. Again, guys, you need to understand at this time, the Roman Catholic Church was not about love or service as much it was about fear and control and money. The Mass was in Latin, and so basically almost all the people didn't understand a lick of what the guy was. Imagine if you came here and I spoke Russian. Be like, I mean, it sounds good. He's got a Bible. It's probably holy. I don't know what he's saying. How would you feel if that's what it was like? How many of you ever have gone to a Latin service? Thank you. You survived. You didn't know it. You didn't know what they were saying. How can your spirit be encouraged? How can you know more about God if you can't even understand the words that are coming out of the pastor or the priest's mouth? Amen? This is the frustration in which people are living in in the day. Not only that, as I said, the people can't even read the Bible for themselves. It was forbidden. Can you imagine it being forbidden? It is in China, Saudi Arabia. Don't think we're not living in that world. Then, well, let, let, me, let me show you a clip. A clip of what it was like to live in this time of fear and of control by the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, what we're going to see a clip is is one of the doctrines of the church that we talked about last week about indulgences, which started to stir the pot and get somebody, as we will see in a minute, uh, to look at what was going on and start to question it. You see, men and women need to look to Jesus and the cross and that alone and not to a church, not to a building not to a set of man rules. So it's a short little two-minute clip. It's part of a longer movie called Luther. Don't unfurl the banners until the fire ignites. Everything has been prepared, exactly as we instructed. finger made raw by the flame will torment you throughout the night. Is it not so? Imagine then your entire body burning. 
not for one sleepless night, not for a week, but for all eternity. Are we to be spared the fires of damnation on the judgment day? Tonight, your Pope, the Vicar of Christ, sends you a gift, a gift to save you from such fires. A special indulgence granted for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome, where the bones of the apostles lie mouldering, exposed to wind and rain, desecrated by wild animals. Take heed the words of your Holy Father who says, lay a stone for St. Peter's and you lay the foundation for your own salvation and happiness in heaven. How? With this indulgence. When? Tonight. And only tonight. Seek the Lord while he is near. Here is your raft. Take hold. So this is what they would do. They would go around to city to city and they would frighten the people. By the way, did you hear anything about God's love there? It's all fear. This is what, this is what went on for over a thousand years inside of the church. And because they were selling indulgences, by the way, here's a little tip. The Pope during this time had more money than anybody else. In fact, Martin Luther challenged him to build the church with his own finances rather than the poor's finances. You don't know that either because that's not taught in church history. He also challenged the Pope and he said, listen, if you can forgive or you can get people out of purgatory, which we talked about last week, isn't biblical, why not just grant people out of purgatory right now instead of making them pay? Good point, huh? So here he is, this man, Martin Luther. God raised him up, allowed him to see things that he had never seen before as a young priest. He started to read the Bible. It's a shock, isn't it? Started to read Romans and Galatians, and he started to see that he was justified by faith, not by works, not by indulgences. Now, later, because, and again, there's a lot about Martin Luther and the history of him that we think we know that we really don't know. In fact, I was telling my family this yesterday that he didn't want to start a new church. He didn't want to start the Protestant Reformation. He just wanted to be a good Catholic priest, but reform those things inside of the church. He never was this guy who, as we know with the 95 Thesis, goes to the door and nails them in anger. By the way, the church or the community bulletin board was the door of the church. And everybody was allowed to read what was up there. And what he posted was 95 Thesis in Latin so that him and his other professors would have a debate on it. It was never to be public. He didn't want his grievances to be in the public eye or to let people know, well, someone got a hold of that 95 Thesis and then printed it everywhere. Okay, well, so that got the ball rolling. Whether or not that was the Lord or not, it's sure funny. And at some point, it comes to the notice of the Pope. And he sends a cardinal named Caritan. 
and as they're uh, going through uh, debate after debate, all Martin Luther said, and I love it because he could have been a part of our church, he said, show me where in the Bible these doctrines are. He said, show me from the Bible, from Scripture, where I err, and if I am wrong, then I will recant. And so at some point, Cayetan says to Martin Luther, the Pope is above Scripture. Now, you may have been an ex-Roman Catholic, maybe you're a Catholic today, and you don't think twice about that because that's what the church has always taught, that the the vicar of Christ is above Scripture, but he's not. And as we know from the popery's history of them being men and how much corruption was inside of there, again, Martin Luther never wanted to go head-to-head with them in that way and create something else. But because of the stubbornness and the downright arrogance of the Roman Catholic Church and Cardinal um, Cayetan at the time, it forced Martin Luther to make a choice. And they told him to recant, and he said, at the end of the day, I cannot. He would not recant. He would not surrender to the false teachings and the heresies inside of the Roman Catholic Church. And in this, God used this former priest to set in motion the Reformation and start the Protestant movement. So Protestant means that we protested against the heresies inside of the Roman Catholic Church. And because we have already said this the last couple of weeks, that because there's no private interpretation of Scripture, that means the Pope can't just have some new edict that you and I would never get. So he's not allowed to do that. He does not have that power. There is no secession of Pope from Peter. There is nothing that they claim to, today to take them back to the Bible and show it to you uh, with proof. So what do we got? Well, for the first time ever, we got a choice. Remember, if you wanted to go to church, honey, where do you want to go to church this Resurrection Sunday? I don't know. How about the only one? It was in the center of town. It had a huge steeple. By the way, those steeples were used so you could see it from a far distance. It was used because they had bells in there and they would, it, it, it brought the, the community in there. And we use that actually in the forming of our own nation. That's why our own nation has lots of steeples in its history because it was used as a public square as well. We'll get into that next week. So now you've got a choice. You've got the Roman Catholic Church and now you have the Protestant Church. Let me just make sure I haven't left anything out. Now, from there, from Martin Luther, we get Lutheranism, right, Lutherans. We get the state church. That's part of the problem that it is being dead because Martin Luther didn't take enough away from the Catholic church. He continued with infant baptism. He continued with um, transubstantiation uh, and a, a host of other doctrines. And one of the worst, as we will see, what his view was against the Jewish nation. But from there, we get the Anabaptists show up a little bit later, which ends up being the Baptist, right? We're going to get the Church of England. We're going to get Method, the Methodist from John Wesley, uh, and then all of the denominations that we have today. So when we're looking at the Church of Sardis, I want you to think of it this way. It's a denomination. 
Now, how has that fared in the last 500 years? What are denominations? What have they done today? And I will tell you, just as a side, outside of my notes here, most mainline denominations are dead. It's not of, of a, an indictment of a whole group, but for the most part, they fall into the category of Sardis. But as we will see, the start of the Protestant churches, and eventually most mainline denominations are in the same place and are dangerously close of being dead. Again, all started out well. The Lutheran church, uh, you know, again, Martin Luther didn't want it to be called the Lutheran church. It just happened to be that. The Methodists come to be Methodists because John Wesley, when they were talking about him and his brother, they said that they were methodical in doing what they were doing, and so they got this term called the Methodist. It was a derogatory term against them, but they ended up saying, hey, we kind of like that. I mean, look at us. We're Calvary Chapel, but we're not a denomination. We're a non-denomination. There are 1,500 Calvary Chapels worldwide but no money, no anything goes to a central location. We are all independent churches directed by the Holy Spirit so that God would direct us how best we should do things here in Myrtle Beach. One last thing about Martin Luther, and then we'll move on because it's really important. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, he started to head down a path of anti-Semitism. In the beginning of his life, he tried to reach out to the rabbis and to the Jewish uh, people in and around that area. And remember, Europe's filled with Jews at this day. And so in the beginning, he thought, well, if I love them and I'm kind to them and I show them Jesus, who Jesus was and their Messiah, eventually they'll come around. That's what he thought. But by the end of it, he realized Listen, they don't want to have anything to do with me. And at the end of his life, he started to get, like a lot of people get at the end of their life, crotchety. None of you, all people in second service. <laughs> and so at some point, 400 years later, the statements of Martin Luther would be used by Adolf Hitler because Adolf Hitler was a good Lutheran. German state church. Because the Lutheran church for the next 400 years echoed the statements of Martin Luther, anti-Semitism came in. They called them Christ killers. Have you ever heard that term? It's from the days of Martin Luther. And so Adolf Hitler seemed to be justified in what he was doing in some twisted way in his in his mind, he thought he was doing God's work by removing the Christ killers off the European continent. Following in the footsteps of Martin Luther. How tragic is that? Started really well, didn't he? Hey, listen, let's just get back to the Bible. I love that about Martin Luther. I love his zeal in the beginning as well. I love that it brought freedom. I love that in eight, or I'm sorry, 11 weeks, he translated the entire New Testament into modern German so that the, that the common people could read the Bible for themselves. I love that about him. 
I love that eventually it goes over to England and, and Tyndale starts putting it into the language of the common people. And eventually in 1610, we have the Bible, the King James Bible. That's all from Martin Luther. There's a lot of good that came out of his life, but a lot of bad came out of his life. We're going to see George Whitfield next week, amazing man of God, and yet he was okay with modern-day slavery. How is that possible? Well, what it shows us is that men and women uh, in history and in the Bible are still sinners. They're saved. In Christ alone, in faith alone, Martin Luther taught. But know with me in verse 1, We're in verse 1. He says, I know your works. Remember, Jesus over the last few weeks knows everything that's going on inside of the church. He knows everything that's going on with you. He knows your works. He knows what you're doing and what you're not doing for the kingdom of God. He says, I know that you have a name. So, Protestant churches, there's a name. That you were alive, but notice, but you're really dead. Um, fascinating thing about dead is that when you're dead, you're dead. Despite their reputation of life, Jesus saw them for what they really were. He called them dead. This shows that a good reputation is no guarantee for true spiritual character. Despite their good appearance, Jesus saw them for what they really were. Again, dead indicates no struggle, no fight, no persecution. It wasn't like the church at Sardis was losing a battle. The body was lost. The battle was done. The fight was over. In this letter, Jesus does not encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand against persecution or a false doctrine, probably because there wasn't a significant danger of these things in Sardis. Being dead, the church of Sardis presented no significant threat to Satan's dominion. I want you to hear this if you're a little tired from that history lesson. The church of Sardis was a perfect model of an inoffensive Christianity church. It's a perfect example of a church that didn't want to offend anybody. So they believed everything, but didn't believe what was really important. They allowed everything. I mean, and I, this, uh, let's say, for the last two weeks, we've been kind of tackling the Roman Catholic Church, and a lot of you are like, yeah, get them. Well, today, it's the Protestants' turn. Think about how much is allowed inside of mainline denominations that are against God's word, that are for culture instead. They want to be relevant rather than right. I don't care about being relevant. I care about the truth. And so this church tells us, this church and many individuals do do not want to use so-called offensive terms inside of the church. The state of the church during this time is much like the church in the 1800s in England. It was ineffective and it was quiet to the issues of the day. The immorality and the drunkenness and the fornication and slavery 
to only one man, William Wilberforce, stood up. He's an interesting guy we'll get to again more next week. And because they were silent, they were no threat to the enemy. Satan loves people and churches who are dead. Dead people are not out evangelizing and pulling people away from sin, are they? In fact, Satan loves Easter. He loves the mixing of the bunny and the eggs and the nonsense that goes on inside of the church on this day. Satan loves it. You see, if he can mix culture and religious act- activities, for some people, he, get, he tricks them into thinking that going to church on this day or on Christmas somehow counts against their sins for the entire year. Like today is the day of atonement. If I just show up today, my whole year is like, I mean, because I that 2020, woo, that was a bad year. So I just come to church on Easter or on Christmas, I'm good with God. Satan loves to deceive people that today is the day you should show up. Don't mind that there are 51 other Sundays during the year. The church of Sardis was at peace, but it was at peace with the dead. Again, Sardis was a city that was living in its own past glories and not in the future achievements It was content in rituals rituals and stained glasses and pews. It was content with old-time hymns. And listen, let me make a statement on music. Do you know that there has always been new music and that the former people who said that was the only music doesn't like the new music that comes out? The music that they used to sing in the 1900s in the beginning was called bar music. And people in the 1800s didn't like the music in the 1900s in the church, and they called it the devil's music. Every next generation of music was called the devil's music. Hymns are not the end-all of end-all. By the way, it is Martin Luther that started singing in the churches because before they chanted, they didn't sing like we know. So we can thank them for that as well. So listen, don't go, I can't stand that song. How about you just open up your heart to what God might have and look at the words. Listen to them. There's nothing wrong with the old rugged cross or amazing grace. But some of the old hymns are bad doctrine too. We got to be careful not to live in the past and be content with the things of the past. And it's real easy to do that. Barclay observes that a church that is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past and when it is more concerned with the forms than with life, when it loves systems more than it loves Jesus Christ, when it's more concerned with material than with spiritual. Verse 2. We do have another service. 
listen to what Jesus says. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Even what they did have was about to die. Why was that? Because the believers had gone asleep. Twice in its long history, Sardis was conquered because they were not aware of the enemy or had overconfidence in the enemy. The impression is that the assembly in Sardis was not aggressive in their witness to this city. There was no persecution because there was no invasion on the enemy's territory. Again, no friction usually means no motion, right? Listen to that. No friction usually means no motion. If you are swimming with the tide, you're not going to bump into anything. But God calls us out of that. He calls us to be different. You should have something happening in your life that shows you to be a believer in Christ. If they took you before the courts, and they may do that, would there be enough evidence to condemn you to jail for knowing Jesus? Or do you have just enough evidence to prove you're dead? You see, these churches are ineffective, and the devil could care less about them. It's the churches that, as we will see next week, the Church of Philadelphia, that has a little strength but God has opened up an amazing door of evangelism and telling people it's not about a denomination. It's not about a church building. It's about your relationship with Jesus Christ. So how do we not become like Sardis? And good to know today. How do we not become dead? Well, in the next few verses, Jesus will tell us how we rise up like Lazarus out of the tomb of religion, because religion is a tomb. You can get comfortable in a tomb. You can get comfortable in a prison cell. But what Jesus is going to tell us is that there is life in a relationship. And so he tells them to be watchful, to wake up. Today's churches and individuals need to wake up, not woke up. Thank you. I'm here all week. That's my favorite phrase lately. We need to wake up, not woke up. And I don't mean to say this in a really bad way, but it's the stupidest new thing that's coming in the church. We need to wake up because what we're seeing is the church is flatlining. It's barely a pulse. Look at the world in which we live in. How effective is the church right now? How effective was it in 2020 when we all decided that we would sit down and obey the man rather than Jesus. How effective are we? So we need to wake up, not woke up, to the society and the culture all around us. We do not let the world dictate what we should say or when we should meet. Jesus has already told us, told us that in his word. Our job as the church is to fellowship and to share Jesus Christ's life. He tells them, I've... I found your works not to be perfect towards God. That means it doesn't measure up. The presence of your works is not complete. Showing up at church is not enough. You need to come to God with brokenness, 
humbleness and with a heart seeking forgiveness. God wants to see you more than twice a year. (laughs) If you saw your spouse just twice a year or your kids twice a year, does that make you a good husband or a good father or a good wife or a good mom? Why do you think that makes you a good Christian? Just to, I'm here twice again. Easter and Christmas, I made it. Talk to you later, Jesus. Do we think that's a good idea in a human relationship? And yet, keeps happening. Having a relationship with somebody means it needs to be ongoing, regular, full of life. And this church, and many like it, are simply just dead inside. In fact, Jesus said this of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he called them whitewashed tombs. He said, on the outside you look good, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones. It looks like life on the outside, but there are no brain waves. People can be kept alive by machines. Do you know that? It seems that there are a lot of churches and individuals who are kept alive by the machine of religion. (laughs) Yet there is no brain activity. And I know some of you are like, we don't have to tell us that. We know. No brain activity. There's no relationship with God. You do not have a relationship with a dead person because they're dead and there's no life. Amen? You don't have a relationship with somebody that's dead. And so Jesus says, wake up. He says then, now remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. There's a lot of repenting that needs to go on in these dead churches. Therefore, if you will not watch, then I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know the hour in which I come Upon you. Remember, this is what Jesus wants us to do. If we find ourselves inside of a dead church or we ourselves are in a dead relationship with Jesus, we need to remember how Sardis was founded, how the Reformation started. It was all based on God's word, it was based on God's word for direction of life, not based on man's rules or man's tradition. Tradition? little fiddler on the roof for you later. When someone comes into the emergency room and is flatlined, the quickest way to get them back is to give them a shot of adrenaline and use the paddles. Clear. Electric shock goes in and it gets the heart beating again. Does the surgeon talk to the heart? Come on, little heart. Come on. You can do it. You have to be aggressive. Do you not? You ever seen like, I mean, I know there are sometimes movies, but you see like a paramedic or a doctor and they're taking their fist and they slam it down on the chest? That's violent. Sometimes that's what's needed. What is needed to get you out of where you are today? And I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking to you on the radio. Are you dead? Do you need a holy punch to the chest from the Holy Spirit? 
if this is you today, you need an adrenaline shot of the Holy Spirit and a shock of the reality. And what is the reality? The reality is in this verse. It says that Jesus is coming and he will come as a thief and you may be left behind. He started last week with Thyatira telling them that they would go through the great tribulation if they did not repent. And now the Protestant church is told the same thing. If you don't get your life right with God, get right or get left. Oh, the church needs to hear that. But he says in verse 4, and and I'm thankful because today too, I'm just thankful that Jesus kind of helps us end on a little bit perkier note than the beginning of the message. You have a few names in Sardis that have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. There are plenty of good Christians in mainline denominations. Amen. How many? I don't know. I know that these organizations started well. And Calvary Chapel is working on uh, coming right up until about 50 years now, about 55 years of being a non-denominational church. And we run the risk, too, of being going through the motions, comfortable where we are, but we need to be about the master's business. We need to occupy. We need not settle for what you have and be content to just be here. What are we doing to pour into the next generation? What are we doing to leave a legacy Guys, we, we, we plan all the time for our 401ks in retirement, but what are we doing to prepare for the next generation to hear about Jesus Christ if he should so tarry? What are we doing? He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Now, it's important because this area, because not only they were a wealthy city, but they were a city that exported wool. They knew what it's like to have white garments, pure garments. He says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his holy angels. And we'll get to that book of life later on in Revelation. And then lastly, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The New Living says it this way. I, I like it better. Anyone with ears... I'm pretty sure we all got them. And if you don't, you got at least a, a spare one. Anyone with ears to hear, listen what the New Living says, must listen to the Spirit. That's so powerful. Why? Because this church is ineffective right now. It's just a building down the street. And more and more people are not coming to it. And that's why 4,000 churches close each year in America. And they're mainly mainline denominations that are closing because the life is gone from it. They are not trying to infuse it with young and hip, hence. I don't have skinny jeans on. It's all right. Today, we must listen to the Holy Spirit prompting your heart to have a real relationship with him, not just twice a year. 
to really come to know God and His Word, which is life, not religion. That is ineffective. Religion never saves anybody. Ask the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Ask the priests during this time before the Reformation. Listen, we cannot and should no longer be culturally silent. If this is the end, I don't know if it is, but if it is, why would we stay silent? I don't care about being culturally relevant. I don't care about offending. I care about people not being in hell. And if I have to wake you up and, well, just give you the truth, then so be it. The warning here is that we do not grow comfortable in our churches lest we find ourselves slowly dying. The encouragement is that no church is beyond hope. I like that. No individual is beyond hope. There is a remnant, and we are to strengthen the things that remain. And today, God gives you the opportunity, if you are here today and you are dead, I don't know where everybody is. I don't know where the next service is going to be. Did they come here because their family member said, hey, come to church, I'll get you lunch? You know, you bribe them into coming? Are you sitting here week in and week out saying, this guy, he has no idea what he's talking about? Oh, I do. Because it's this. It's the Bible. It's not tradition. It's not man. Today, if you're dead, let God get the paddles out and not the paddle that we think. This paddle. A shot of adrenaline. The Holy Spirit. By the way, and I, I am ending, but I think it's interesting that he says in verse 1, these things says he who has the seven spirits. I will tell you for the most part, Mainline denominations problem is the lack of the Holy Spirit working in their churches. And for a lot of those mainline churches, they don't even believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. Oh, they might talk about the Holy Ghost, but they're not going to really believe it. And I love how Jesus says, you know what the fix is? It's my spirit. It's my spirit and the word. And you put those together. You get in a live church. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day of resurrection to thank you for what you did for us upon the cross and that coming out of the tomb, you give us joy and life. And Father, that we would not be content where we are in our walk with you, that we wouldn't be content living and dwelling in a dead church that we would come alive to the, to the needs of those around us in this culture. That, Lord, that we would use whatever means to reach the next generation of believers. To not be an, a, just a dull, a dull, dead, smelly church. But one that's alive. And one that is excited that Jesus is coming. Father, that we would not be caught off guard and that when the trumpet blast, our head would lift up high and say, Lord, take me home. Lord, we call out Maranatha today 
as your servant John says at the end of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And so we thank you, Lord, for coming together today and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.